Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. As we enter into this series, God's indescribable gift, we find ourselves, first of all, in Isaiah chapter 9. And in this chapter, I think God stretches the boundaries of our understanding. Picture it this way. Suppose you've had a sweater that you've worn every Christmas, that Christmas sweater. And because you've washed it and because you've dried it, it's shrunk over the years. We won't say that you've gained any weight over the years, but it's shrunk. And finally, you decide, I have a decision to make. Either I throw the sweater away or I wet it and I try to stretch it out because I love this sweater. And today, I want to stretch out for you the boundaries of perhaps you, how you and I have shrunk our understanding of God, particularly as it relates to Christmas. So in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Four things to look at here, and the first thing is to notice right there in verse 6 who Isaiah is talking to. He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The emphasis here and the language is on you and me. Now, the context is about a defeated people. Israel has become an oppressed defeated people. You'll remember they were slaves for 400 years in Egypt, and now it's happened again. Assyria has come in and conquered the northern tribes of Israel. So 10 tribes have now been enslaved and oppressed again. And it's in that context that Isaiah comes to give this wonderful message So if you go back on your free time to just look at all the things that Isaiah says in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9, you'll find out he's describing a people that live in darkness. He says again, in deep darkness, that's implying the emotions of what it feels like to be oppressed, the yoke that burdens So he's actually describing you and I to be an oxen that might have this yoke upon us and we're being driven uh, to plow this field or whatever. And we're being beaten by a rod of oppression. And then the final word in verse five is the garment rolled in blood. So it's been a bloody battle. Now, just take that alone and think back through the year 2020 been tough, tough year, and darkness and deep darkness might be adjectives that you and I would describe, use to describe our year as well. And so 
you have to picture Israel as a nation now groping in darkness, seeking for meaning, seeking for light, seeking for purpose in their lives. Then in this same context of darkness, going back to verses one through five, we read some other things that give us hope. We read adjectives like honor is coming, great light, light that is dawned. He's going to enlarge the nation. He's going to increase their joy like the day of harvest. And he's going to break and shatter this yoke of oppression. So this is what we're to imagine the Messiah, the child of Christmas, that indescribable gift is coming to do into this deep fog of darkness, pain, oppression, and gloom, God is coming, and his answer for us is with a child. Here's the irony. It's nothing you and I would imagine for God to give us as a lifeguard, a rescuer, a first responder who's gonna come and deliver us. God in the darkest part of our lives is sending to us a child. This is in keeping with what we've already found out through Isaiah chapter seven, where the promise was that a virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. So the rescuer is going to be the child, an infant of some woman. But the word structure that I want you to grab hold of here right out of the gate is the repetition for us, to us, to us, that this indescribable, remarkable gift is for you. And that's big. You know, I, I was raised in a context where everybody else always won the prizes. Everybody else won bingo. Everybody else was called to the presenter's stand to be given an award. And I just assumed in my mind that I would never be a winner. I would never be in the winner's circle. But the message of Christmas is for you. You are the winner. You get the prize, this remarkable gift of a child. The best verse we could ever read at Christmas time, it describes this perfectly. John 3:16, "For God so loved you that He gave His only begotten Son." And so it's for us. And it is given. A child and a son is given. And that's letting us know it's a pure gift. There's nothing you did to earn it. There's no remarkable thing you did or were in your beauty, your brains, and your bucks, your performance, nothing. And that opens the door for all, all, all of us failures, all of us sinners, all of the people that maybe there's just no way that I could muster up joy and hope inside of my resources. It's given to you freely by God. So there it is, right out of the gate, this good news that God has for us. I imagine the shepherds that night that Jesus was born and how the angel comes to the unlikely people, shepherds. It kind of connotates for me what it's like for you and I to read these words, for to us, 
if, if you see yourself as the, the person that, that would say to our, us or to ourselves, yep, if I were God, I would have loved me too. You're not capturing the essence of the verse. It's, it's where we're to see ourselves as poor beggars that have nothing to offer to the conversation. And then God comes in and says, I want you. This is for you. You're the winner. And now he tells us, Isaiah does, the attributes of the child. He does it in a way that rings true to the historical context in which Isaiah was written. We actually have from archaeology the title that was given in Egypt to one of the pharaohs. And in that context, the pharaoh is given six titles, and each title is in couplet form. And it helps us to understand what Isaiah is doing here, being in the context of the Middle East. He gives this child four couplets of names. Listen to them. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Let's just quickly unpack each one of those. So he says, wonderful counselor. Now, you've probably heard me say before that the the literal here in the Hebrew is not wonderful, but actually wonder, kind of like wonder dog. Uh, You know, it's, it's not an adjective, it's a noun. And it's describing the counselor that God, through this child, will be, he will bring wonder to you and I with the amazing counseling wisdom that he brings to us. Where we're kind of stuck in awe at the great wisdom that he brings. Now fast forward to the life of Jesus and and you realize that that's exactly what Jesus did through the parables, through his conversations with the Pharisees. He was always leaving them in wonder, amazed at his wisdom. And that's who the Messiah is. This wonder, leave you in wonder, counselor. This word is used actually in uh, the context of Judges chapter 13, where Samson, his father, is being told by an angel, the angel of the Lord, that they're gonna have a son. And he says to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? that I might just know your name. And he says, why do you ask my name? My name is Wonder, uh, which is usually translated in your translation, it's beyond your understanding. So God is going to do some amazing things that are gonna be beyond our understanding, but we're gonna be left in wonder. The second title, that the Messiah child has is mighty God. This is not what you think of, of as a child. And here you have the irony that a child is being born and we're going to come to know him as mighty God. This God who is all powerful Thanks for listening this week. and wonderful. If you're looking for ways to serve, myth that's give, grown up or in get the connected, world, please visit our website, Awakening. North Coast and that has to do with the, the idea that uh, Jesus wasn't really God, that he was just a wonderful man. He taught a lot of wonderful things. And, and then 
the story kind of went bad and he died on the cross, but the disciples tried to make the story good by claiming that he rose from the dead and later on claimed that he was actually God. And, and that really fits the Western reductionistic progressive view of how we like to reduce everything, including God, to fit into our pocket. But that's actually not the true story. The true story is Jesus several times intimated and claimed to be God, and that's one of the reasons why they crucified him. In Mark chapter 2, they actually accuse him of being uh, blasphemous because he says, that he can forgive sins. And they say only God can, can forgive sins. Bingo. Another time, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Wait a second. Jesus is talking uh, at the beginning of the first century. Abraham lived 1,400 years to 15, 1,600 years before that, and Jesus is saying, before Abraham, I was. How could he do, how could he live 2,000 years before he lived? Bingo, he was God. Another time, he's accused of claiming himself to be God because he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Later on, Paul, the apostle, is not changing the narrative. He's just explaining to us that Jesus is in fact God. In Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is the image for us of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. For by him, all things were created. Before all things and in him, all things hold together. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh. Hebrews 1, 1, in the past, God spoke to us through uh, to, and our forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his dear son, whom he appointed heir of all things and listen, and through whom he made the universe. The other night, I was looking at Orion. It was crystal clear. We don't get that kind of clarity usually on the coast. And I was just in awe as I was looking at the stars. And then to think that this little baby that was born at Christmas is the hand that flung those stars into the existence. That's what the Bible teaches. Mighty God. He's everlasting father. He's going to last forever. Before, as far as you can think back in time, before that, before the Big Bang, before creation, he was. Think back as far as you can go into the future. There he is. And who is he? He is a father. Many people are okay with thinking God as father as we think about him as the father of creation, the father who made all things. But once we start moving into the I-thou interpersonal relationship with God, oftentimes you can feel people putting on the brakes because intimacy with God either is scary or it sounds audacious that I could claim that I could be so intimate with God that I could call him 
not only father, but as the New Testament calls him, Abba, Daddy. But that's what Jesus brings to us, everlasting father. And finally, Prince of Peace. For peace, you have to think of shalom, which is what the word is here, which is a holistic wellness in you and outside of you in society and culture, including government. And this prince, which is a governmental word, is coming to bring cultural and social as well as individual wholeness to you and me. Amazing. Jumping now to the third thing that we've learned about that is for you. We've learned these four names of of who this child is. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. But now notice what it says about the government. The government will be on his shoulders, the end of verse six, and now moving on to verse seven. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So there's no end to his administration. There's not four-year limit to his term. And there's no limit to the geographical extension of his kingdom. It's going to be everywhere for everywhere. And he will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it. Why? with justice. Justice has become a big word and it should be a big word. It's used 150 times in the Old Testament. And one of the reasons justice is talked about in the Old Testament is because all of the human governments aren't able to come around and actually deliver on justice. And justice isn't just entitlement or injustice isn't just a few pet issues that I choose to, when I hear people say about environmental justice, I, I, I'm always smiling to our, myself of how we pick and choose our justices. And that's part of the problem that God is describing justice for everything and everyone. So it's not just environmental justice. It's not just racial justice. It's not just economic justice. It's holistic rightness. And that's why justice and righteousness are used in parallel form here because they are synonyms. The word righteous, zedek, means to fall in line it, it, to do what the right thing is. And it's so hard for humans individually and corporately to always do the right thing in every way for everyone. But God's promise is the Christmas child brings that kind of justice to you and I. And guess what? It lasts forever. From that time on, and forever. You know, we just came through a huge election. And and I've probably lived a lot longer than you have. But I've seen a lot of elections in my day. And it seems like society every year begins to think and act as if we're voting for the Messiah, to put the Messiah into the White House, that this person is finally going to be so incredible, so amazing. And something happens before or during that we realize, oh, they're just a person. 
oh, they have a bias. Oh, they are limited by their philosophy or policy. And we realize why the story of Christmas is so important because the Messiah brings us this full justice. So it says here that the government will be on his shoulders and there's no end and he will reign forever and ever. Now, as you fast forward to Jesus' life, you'll see the the amazing way that Jesus decided to do it. He didn't just bust through the clouds as he will one day and plant his flag on planet earth and say, this is my planet. I'm going to put everything right again. He will do that one day, but he comes and plants his flag on your heart and my heart. He starts with your will. He starts with my volition because That's where the problem is. G.K. Chesterton wrote into the London newspaper when they asked for an essay on what is the problem of the world. And he answered it and won the essay competition by two words. The problem with the world is me. I am, he said. That's it. We think that we can fix all these external things, but guess what? It's humanoids. It's us that are the problem. And so Jesus does this inside work and starts with your heart and my heart because that's where the kingdom of God has to begin to reign. So the Christ child, the Christmas story, this indescribable gift that comes to us actually comes into us through the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins and the starting of lordship, the government of God begins in you. Ooh, I like that, Mark. Could you say that again? Yeah, I will say that again. The government of God begins in you. So now we come to the end of the story How can I know that this is going to happen? I mean, this sounds like it's so good. This can't be true. Who's going to do this? A child is going to come and he's really coming for me and he's everlasting God and he's going to bring this great government that's going to change the world and change me. How can I be sure? And Isaiah answers the question at the end. He says, because... For the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Done. This isn't a campaign promise from a politician. This is God, and God's zeal is going to do it. There's a wonderful phrase in the Old Testament that's used several times, and I'm always fascinated by how we translate this phrase, but it's the Hebrew has to do with God laying his right arm bare. And the only English counterpart I can think of is when we talk about rolling up our sleeves. When we use that idiom, rolling up our sleeves, that means we're getting to work. We're getting down to business. But the right arm is usually used for the, the, obviously some of you are left-handed, but the majority of people that that is the stronger arm. 
So when God lays bare his right arm, when God rolls up his sleeve, done, it's gonna happen. And so that's what Isaiah is saying here. The zeal of God, not human zeal, not human effort, the zeal of God is going to accomplish this. Now, what do we do with this, friends? Is this Pollyanna? Is this just make-believe talk? Half of our nation's forefathers kind of dismissed at the beginning of our nation uh, the idea of this interpersonal, loving, uh, incarnate God by a religion called deism where we taught that there is a God and there is a moral God, but he's too busy, he's too involved with the rest of the universe, and he's too impersonal to care about you. And that was out of the enlightenment because we just couldn't imagine God loving us that much. So let me stretch your Christmas sweater inside your heart and your mind to say, no, God is bigger than that. God loves you, so to you, a child is born, a son is given, and his name is God. And his government, which is perfect and true, wants to begin in your heart and will one day rule the planet as it rules the universe now. And you can be sure you can take it to the bank. It's going to be completed because the zeal of the Lord Almighty is doing all of this. There's a passage of scripture that I want to close with that's going to bring this all together. You and I hear this passage of scripture often at evangelistic crusades. You know the verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens the door, I will come in to him or her and sup with them or have fellowship with them and they with me. This interpersonal dynamic is going to happen, but they got to open up the door of their hearts, right? And so we long for our, Christian, our non-Christian friends to discover this wonderful love. But let me just remind you for a moment, the verse was written to Christians. Go back and look. It's in one of the letters to the churches in Revelation. And it's Christians who have shrunk God down. It's Christians who have have forgotten that God interpersonally loves us and wants to have fellowship with us. It's Christians that have forgotten the basis of the Christmas story that's an indescribable gift of a person to you and to me. So I'm gonna pray a prayer in just a moment. And I want you to pray this prayer with me that Jesus might come into your heart this Christmas in a bigger way. Will you do that? Let's pray. Dear Father, I open my heart to you. Yeah, just repeat after me. I open my heart to you afresh. Come in and clean house.
forgive me, establish a deeper relationship with me, and be the king, the Lord, the government of my life. Make this Christmas be expansive for me as you freshly come into my life as an indescribable gift. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.